You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Let's talk a little bit about actinic keratosis. I'm going to make sure that uh, anything you think you knew or thought you knew gets discussed today. Any questions come up, we'll go through them. There's going to be a lot of uh, good stuff today also. You'll hear a little bit uh, about costs from Dr. Kirby. You'll hear about medical management of skin cancer from Dr. Brown. And then I have a another photodynamic therapy session in the afternoon. So it's a good day to talk about some of this stuff. More importantly, let's talk about managing actinic keratosis treatment, not just treating, but treating through the disease and walking people off the ledge. Because I think there are a lot of issues that go on with how do I stop the redness? How do I get people to stay on therapy? How do I get you know, the symptom profile and the consequence of treatment to be manageable? And there are a lot of ways to go through that. So. We're kind of getting to the into the weeds as far as treatment, but also more importantly is management of the treatment and making it effective and, and tolerable, which I think is very important. So let's go, we'll kind of go through some strategies on how to treat the reactions. Whenever you do research, you know, it, it's always entertaining with, with actinic keratosis drugs because patients are like, well, I don't want the placebo. I said, well, you know what? I just made sure you got it, so shut up. And it's great because everyone, everything to a patient is a placebo. It doesn't work. It didn't work for me. It's like, well, guess what? We'll redefine what work means for you, and then we'll see if you got the placebo or not. So at the end of this discussion this morning, I want you guys to redefine, like I said yesterday, what does work mean? Work doesn't mean patients blowing up. Work doesn't mean getting red. Work means did you reach the conclusion of what you wanted when you started treatment, whatever treatment that is. I think more importantly, though, you have to redefine what is actinic keratosis and what is the disease. Is it really a lesion of its own? Is it something that can grow or evolve or regress or already be part of squamous cell carcinoma? Is it a symptom of a bigger problem, which is photodamage? And if, for example, you take actinic keratosis and say, look at the big picture of the whole photodamaged patient, is this something that actually is a part of that whole big picture? And what's your real diagnosis here? And then you look at them under the microscope and you look at what some of the dermatopathology literature gurus have said and say, is this already squamous cell carcinoma in situ and is it already something in motion that we need to slow down or, or remove as not just one spot but also part of a big process? Okay? So I think when you look at the next patient you have with, with an actinic keratosis and you ask them, well, how long has this spot been there? Nine times out of ten, they'll say, well, it's just this dry spot, it won't go away. But you look at them and say, look how photo damaged you are. This one spot now will give you ten spots later. And that's what I think is part of the process that you need to treat through. So again, I mean, think of the spectrum of photo damage all the way from normal skin to squamous cell. There's a disease continuum that goes on, right? It's not just one bus stop after another. It's part of a progression. But... Look at it this way. I mean, I mean, how many of you use the word precancer when you talk about AKs, right? Most everybody, right? This is a precancerous spot that if we don't treat it, we need, it's going to turn into skin cancer, so let's treat it, right? It's, not, it's the majority of the way that AKs are discussed with patients. And yet there's, a, there's this inaccuracy that goes on with the word premalignant when we think about treating through the disease state when just treating the spots, Right? So again, how we define this to patients will help them define expectations, and it will help us define how are we going to see these patients back. Are we going to see them in a month? 
We can see them every six months. How often do we screen them? And how vigorous is their treatment going to be both at the office and in between the visits? So uh, Jocelyn, Kirby, uh, Jocelyn Kirby's group in uh, Pennsylvania, they did a, a little work with this survey, which I thought was very interesting. They took a bunch of patients. They, they discussed a bunch of questions about AKs. Their average age was 42, which is actually important to recognize because it's not Medicare age, right? It's, it's the normal age group that you now see with, with photo damage. And what they did was they brought up the discussion of an AK in, in the context of pre-cancer. And when the word pre-cancer was used, 92% of the time responded with a affirmative that they wanted treatment. But there was a group that also did not hear the word pre-cancer, and that group, only 60% of the time, wanted treatment. So in the definition and the discussion with your patients, if you put some severity behind it about the risk of cancer or where skin cancer fits, that will help define to the patient where skin cancer and severity of treating actinic keratosis comes at. So there, there is some connection to where you want to put that into context in your, in your patient's discussion. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, of, uh, of thinking about actinic keratosis like cavities. And, you know, there are a bunch of my colleagues who think I'm crazy, but, you know, that's great. I'm crazy anyway. That's fine. So you go to the dentist, and what happens? They go around with a probe, and they reach, and as soon as the probe sticks, they say, well, that's a cavity, right? Or it's a cavity on the way. When you feel for acutane keratosis, you feel like this, and your finger sticks, and you say, oh, yeah, here we go. And they keep going. And you tell the patients to do the same thing, right? So that they don't just think it's a brown spot or a dry spot. They think it's actually something of relevance. So the problem becomes when you have cavities, if you have one today, there are 10 more on other way, right? Same problem goes with actinic keratosis. If you only treat the one you see, you're missing everything that's in evolution. And filling cavities is just like freezing. It's just a bandage, right? We're not doing anything to the entire process. There's no remedy involved. So how many of you brushed your teeth this morning? Okay, turn to the person to your right and ask them if they brushed their teeth. Okay. So what did you do when you brushed your teeth? What were you treating? You're not treating anything, right? You're preventing a problem when you brush your teeth. Shouldn't sunscreens be in the same mindset as brushing your teeth? Because you're not treating anything with sunscreens, right? You're getting patients into a remedy mode of prevention when you use sunscreens. And I think the same concept goes along when you think about photo damage. You're going through the process rather than actually treating something. So there's a, there's a distinction between prevention strategies, remedy, and bandage. And that's how I want you guys to think about when you're next AK patient when you go through that. And we go through this discussion of subclinical AKs. Well, what, you know, we're treating the subclinical lesions, so we're treating the disease. Well, we don't use any kind of fluoroscope or any kind of imaging strategy for actinic keratosis. Right? We may use a dermatoscope to make it interesting or you know, obviously use our fingers and our eyes, but there is not that, that imaging sense that we use, you know, like they do in Europe, for example, with actinic keratosis. And again, we think about the concept of evolution that we're treating through the disease state by treating all over the face, not just treating one spot. So I think that's really, again, the, the concept that needs to be grasped a little bit, even though it may be a little difficult for some patients to actually execute those decisions. So what happens if we don't treat AKs? What happens if we leave one alone? Well, anywhere from less than 1% to 16% of AKs 
can actually progress to scram itself, according to many different studies, and this is just around the world, around the different literature um, throughout, probably an average of 8%, they'd say, well, these will turn into squame. And sure, you'll say, okay, well, we'll be, right? Well, then why treat them? I think the flip side is the argument of how many squames were associated with actinic keratosis, and that number is actually 84%. So if you go back to the literature, how many patients who had a squamous cell diagnosed who had an AK associated with that, that's 80% of the time. So which part is worse, and which part of our negligence of treating comes back to that discussion point. So this was an interesting article. It was in the, in the JAD about the number of transplant patients who showed evolution. And obviously, they're immunosuppressed, those patients. So, you know, they basically rode down the hill as far as the number of AKs they go. I look at this number and say, okay, think of your heavily photodamaged patient who has 20 AKs or more. Think of this number who actually showed up with a squamous cell, right? And you look at the far right and that, and that adjusted risk, and you say, okay, am I addressing your, your risk of further squamous cell or further development of potential of squamous cell if I'm not treating all over the place, right? And I'm not just talking about face, I'm talking about hands and arms, even the you know, trunk and shoulders. These are, again, reasons for us not only to you know, make sure we do a good exam, but also make sure we're treating through the disease and not just what we see today, okay? So I, I, I look at all of these numbers and I say, oh well, yeah, someone comes in with 28 Ks, I'm not just gonna say, sure, I'll see you next year. I'll say, all right, let's, let's get to work. Right? Let's think about chemopreventive strategies. Let's think about topicals. Let's think about PDT. Let's think about all the things that treat surface area and go through the disease, not just treat with liquid nitrogen and just and go from there. Okay. So from that, can we can we make the make the case that actinic keratosis treatment can be more simple or complete? So this was a study done at the at the at the VA, uh, a couple different VA hospitals, where they just took. Patients treated them with five of you and said, okay, let's have at it, right? And many of the investigators found that just one simple course of 5-FU cream actually reduced the amount of AKs that not only developed, but also kept them away for two years. And it's like, okay, great. You have a bunch of old white guys in a, v in a controlled hospital. All of them got treated, and they didn't say no to treatment because they were veterans, and they said thank you. That's a great population mix that defines how everybody should be treated, Right. It sounds a little bit, you know, dramatic, but in the same time frame of two years, if you've, did one, if you've done one course, it may say something about the concept of treating aggressively and often and making things stay away. So there may be some validity to that. I just don't think it's the population that represents everybody with actinic keratosis. However, I think the flip side is if there's something about 5-FU that does the job of desquamation and then all of a sudden there's no AK returns, Maybe there's something to that, that essence that we should think about. My thing is, if the more we use the immune responses to our advantage, the more we induce an immune surveillance, the more we're going to have destruction that's a little bit more complete. So, you know, the treatments like amicumab and nigenol, mepitate, and all the ones that induce an immune response, whether it be primary, secondary, whether it be part of a more specific antigen-driven response or something that's not specific, any type of inflammation that's used. To the, to, the, to the surveillance mechanism will be helpful for the long run. The reason I bring this up is because there was, there was a whole era where topical steroids were used to shut down the inflammatory process that was developed. And that actually, in the end, turned out to be you know, a, a, a bad decision because the inflammation that came from that 
came from those treatments was actually beneficial to the surveillance mechanism. So I want you guys to remember, you know, what the MOA of each drug does. I also want you to remember what treating through the disease state does. And that's where this comes in. So we go back to, you know, the patient who wants to just do spots. And he said, well, I'll give them 5-FU. I'll have them treat the spots before they come. I'll have them, you know, I'll freeze them when they come in, and we should be fine. It's like, well, okay, great. What about the spot that's on its way? What about the spot that's already evolving into squamous cell in situ? Right? So, again, 5% of 5-FU was used versus vehicle in the study, treating you know, the spots for you know, twice a day for four weeks. At six months, they had fewer NKs, they had more clearance, and they had more, you know, fewer spot treatments. I think that's fine as long as you can get patients to stick with their surveillance. I just don't think it's complete when you think about this problem. So when you think about this study, which was done in Germany, they looked at 5% Mecomod every other day for a month versus 5% of you twice a day for a month versus liquid nitrogen for 40 seconds. And I said, 40 seconds? I can't even get San Diego patients to sit for three seconds. I mean, how are you going to get the Germans to sit for 40 seconds? But these are the Germans, so, I, you know, what are you going to So, long story short, if you look at what happens under the microscope after a month, there was probably equivalent clearance between the two treatment arms, but look at only 30% of treatment with liquid nitrogen under the microscope, Right? So when we freeze patients, it's, it's not complete because we're not treating the entire process. And when we think about a patient who's had for 40 seconds of liquid nitrogen, that's a very vigorous freeze, and still only 32% clearance under the microscope of the actinic eratosis means there's de- definitely potential for recurrence, right? There's also potential for invasion, and that's the other concerning part. I think the other part of the equation is treating through the entire disease of photo damage. And if you go back to the cavity example and you say, okay, did we treat the entire mouth or just treat one cavity? We look again at the skin and say, did we treat the entire area of photo damage, not just the one lesion that we were, we were thinking about? And what are we doing to the process and that risk of developing squay? So I want you guys to remember some of these numbers because we don't think about this a lot when we're freezing. We think about, okay, let's just freeze and go, see in a couple months, and, and who's next? So there's a new 5-FU cream. It's called Tolac. It's in a peanut oil base similar to Dermasmooth, which actually is showing uh, not only similar efficacy but a significantly less um, local skin reaction profile than the old Effidex, and I think it's, it's worth looking into if you haven't. The nice thing about it, too, is that it has once a day versus twice a day indication, and it also is showing very good clearance results. So this is where 5-FU is getting rebranded a little bit, and I also think, too, where you, you freeze patients, treat them with 5-FU in this, in this vehicle, and then freeze them again, you're actually doing something more for the process and not just a, not just a bandage in front of them. There was going to be a drug that came to market. It was called Inginol disoxate, which unfortunately is being pulled or has been pulled, but I think there may be a comeback one day of something like this. It was a very vigorous version of Inginol Mebutate, created a lot of local skin reactions. It was meant for 200 square centimeters. You know, it would have been great for, for the body, for the arms, you know, head, you know chest and back. The, the activity of protein kinase C against, you know, the neutrophil burst was really strong, but I think, you know, again, one day we, we may see it come back, but right now it's, it's going to sit on the shelf, which is too bad. Inginol Mebutane, however, is being revisited as far as service areas. So if you remember, Picato Gel had the, the small tubes, and everyone used to ask, well, how, how, how much can I use? The, the problem in clinical research is 
all of those all of those research studies are standardized to 25 square centimeters. That's what brings them to market. But we all know, you know, the more you can treat, the better. I mean, that's that's just intuition. And now that some of these dose escalation studies are in print, I think we have a little bit more proof that you can take that one tube and treat the entire area, and there's no big deal, right? And Uncle Leo was not going to say anything about it because, you know, the, the data is there. But I think more importantly, you don't want to just have patients treat a couple spots with those two small tubes or three on the face and then say, okay, we'll just throw the rest of the garbage. That's not going to work. So I, I think the message from there is optimizing the amount of surface area that you can treat and getting the, the backup for it. And, and you see here, two-day treatment for the trunk and extremities, three-day treatment for the face and scalp. You see the advantage of treating these entire surface areas with these new percentages. And I think this will, this will work its way to, to the marketplace. This is what they call the AK-75 study, where they took 62 patients. You know, they had 20% surface area in the scalp. They treated the face and the chest. And again, treating these areas for two to three days with those higher percentages, they may have had some vigorous reactions, but at the same time, they had some good clearance rates. And I think that's really important for the patient who can't come see us, you know, every month. The patient who lives far away from a dermatologist. The patient who has a high copay who, who can't be seen more than twice a year, right? These are the patients you want to treat through the disease for the long run, not just treat what's in front of you. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this was an interesting article about it. Just kind of a small head-to-head study in general, Mepitate versus Diclofenac, which, again, it's kind of like, okay, you know, that there's that movie with De Niro and Stallone. There were two old boxers, the grudge match, I think. They say, yeah, let's get these old guys out and have a grudge match. Well, this is kind of a grudge match between two old treatments that probably had nothing else to do. So let's do a study, right? I think that the essence is they, they took the same patient group, contiguous area, and they looked at the clearance. And again, the digital mebitate group actually did, did pretty well in comparison. I think, I think the, the, the take-home lesson is that Clofenac was a treatment that was meant for three months. It was not a brisk reacting drug. It was not something that was going to create a, a lot of local skin reactions, but it was going to create a clearance that you can rely on for the long run. To, to compare a two-day or three-day treatment to a three-month treatment is, is a little bit unfair, but at the same time, if you look at the results, you can say, okay, pick your patient with which compliance success potential and say, okay, I'll give you this one because I know you're going to stick with it. And there are some patients you'll all have who say, well, I don't want to get red. And there's other patients who say, just get this over with quickly. And you'll, and you'll know from the discussion which mechanism of action is going to be the right one for them based on what it does to the process. I think the bigger question, too, is, you know, for, for a lot of patients, is what's going to happen later, right? And I think one of the selling points that we have for a lot of these treatments, whether it be topical or PDT, is the cosmetic outcome. And you'll, you'll hear a little bit more from that uh, this afternoon. Um, but some of the cosmetic scales and indices that go along with patients who say, well, my skin looks better, or it feels softer, or it's less sallow, or there's fewer wrinkles, or there's less, you know, I, I don't look as sun-damaged. There's a lot of that goes on with some of these topical therapies because it's not really a rejuvenation effect as much as it is a desquamation effect and a repair effect from what goes on for the treatment. And this was measured in this, uh, this study with the genome epitate, um, looking at three days. They looked at the photo age, age indices, seven days, 30 days, and 60 days, measured the counts, measured everything else. And you can see from the, the graph up at B and C and D, you know, they looked better overall. There was less pigment. There was less, you know, wrinkling. But this took time. It took a, 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 you know, over the long run to get to that point. 
right? Same with the UC group, uh, the group F, where the texture was improved. And, and I think these are things that we can use to discuss with patients. Okay, we're not just going to treat the spots, but overall we're going to do something about the photo damage. And then I think you get in a lot of females to buy in, you get a lot of younger males to buy in, and, and they'll understand the, the nuance of why we're treating. So you take a patient like this, and you say, okay, let's get to work, right? And, and she was like, oh, I don't want to get red, I don't want to blow up. I said, we're going to blow up for two weeks and then be ready. So at day four, you know, she, she felt like the guy from Raiders and the Lost Ark where her face was melting. You know, she was, you know, ready to post, you know, every negative review on the planet to us, calling us every hour. It's like, my face hurts, my face hurts. I'm like, okay, come on back in. Let's talk a little bit. And again, there is a little bit of walking them through and you see, you know, how things progressed from day four to day eight. I mean, it's a little bit like flying, right? You take off, you, have a, you reach an altitude, you kind of plateau, and then you start to land as things you know, go down. What you do for them in between is going to make or break their compliance or their ability to stick with the, the reactions. So this is where a patient, you give them topical anesthetics, for example. You give them a lot of barrier device creams to give them some emollient therapy. You give them things that will reduce their itching. But the only thing you, you avoid at all costs is topical steroids because that will undo the inflammation pattern that is going to treat through that reaction pattern. Right? There are better things out there for itch, for pain, for the response symptoms than steroids. But if you treat the response as a negative or an adverse event, you, you will lose out on the benefits of what you just created. And you see that patient again at day 15, now look at her at four weeks, and now look at her at eight weeks, right? So she went from miserable to, oh my God, my, face, my skin is so soft, I don't have any of those spots anymore, I don't look like I was out in the sun for years, right? So again, getting them through that period is important, but treating the symptom profile is important, not treating the inflammation. So do what you can to avoid using steroids throughout the course. I think that's really the, the best advice I could probably give you. And it takes a little bit of hand-holding, right? You gotta see them back. You see them as wound care follow-ups. You see them for like two minutes, and they'll look at you like, what have you done to me? And you just, you give them a little pat, you hold their hand and say, good job, this is exactly what we want. And, and they'll look at you like you're insane, and you'll be like, look, this is treating what's coming, and the overall photo damage that you'll see Will, will have less consequence. And you know, again, they'll, and they'll look at you like, well, why are you doing this to me? And you'll, then you want to say, well, why did you go to the beach when you were you know, in your 20s and lay out for tw you know, you know, every other day, right? Nobody stopped you then and gave you this picture and said, you know, you're going to look like a purse when you're 40. So, so the, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys have all seen something like Mary and uh, you remember Magda, you know, she sat out there with the... Uh, you know, with the, with the pan, and she's like getting all the UV lights, she looked like a leather lady. I'm like, don't do that, right? It doesn't matter if you're in San Diego or Milwaukee or anywhere else. It's like, don't, don't do this to now, to your skin, because you know what's going to happen. So again, I think it's anticipation of the responses, the, the expected vigorous responses. You, you have to be able to define them as well as get patients ready for them, because without that, you're, you're going to hear a lot of complaints. There's going to be a lot of surprise. There's also going to be a lot of noncompliance, and I think that's where we, we, we tend to lose out. But again, I keep saying back to steroids, there are so many better things out there that can treat the erythema, that can treat the, the epidermal change and treat the symptoms that will not undo the response, and that's what we want. And these, and these patients, you know, again, they, they look at these reactions and they're surprised. 
but you have to get them through to the point where you know you can you can get them to decide how things are going to do next time they want to treat. This was a guy I, I love talking about because he's a perfect example of I'm not going to listen to you, and it was great. So you know I froze him. I said, okay, we're going to start a Michelin cream. Don't start anything for a week. Let the freezing responses die down. He said, well, I have to go to Palm Springs. I have to go play golf. I have to do this and that. I said, do whatever you want. Just do not start your medicine. Put your sunblock on and call us you know, next week. So, of course, what does he do? He goes straight to the pharmacy, puts the medicine right on. And I'm like, you idiot. What did we just talk about? He said, don't call me an idiot. I said, well, then don't be an idiot. And I won't call you one. And of course, his wife, you know, she's the pit bull of the family. And she says, what did you do to him? I said, what did you do to him? I said, I told him not to start the medicine. And look what you guys did. So they come running in. He's all crusty. He's all this and that. I'm like, that's all I did. I just shook my head. I said, what the hell? Right? I said, you want to put this on me? But I told you, do not start this for a week. And the reason is, what, what's happening? Because the inflammatory response from cryotherapy or PDT or anything you do destruction-wise is going to create a secondary inflammatory response that will augment what imiquimod will do, right? So he comes in thinking, oh, I'm all infected, you know, how could you do this to me, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, let's, let's debris some of the crust, let's get some of this to go down. This was him the next day, literally the next day, right? And again, they think you're infected. I'm like, where's the infection? Show it to me. Well, there's pus everywhere. I'm like, there's pus everywhere? Then let's, you know... Let's go on YouTube and show it to everybody, right? Because you're the bus guy. Point of the exercise is, again, talking them off the ledge, making sure that they understand how inflammation works, that inflammation is a good thing when it comes to these therapies, but also that this did not just happen yesterday and things are not going to get better in two days, right? This is part of the long-term treatment, part of the long-term process that got you here in the first place. So again, you know, best thing to do is, again, start slowly, work your way through, wait at least a week if you can between the time that uh, you start treatment from what you did in the office. That's why I really like using a lot of specialty pharmacies because it takes a couple of days to mail the drug and they don't have that risk of starting right away. But also, I also know, I know what they're getting. Um, I like to rotate you know, the treatments, right? You start maybe forehead every other day, rotate that with the temples, rotate that with the arms, you know, definitely make sure that there's no history of herpes simplex, and then, you know, find something that's bacteriostatic, that's a healing ointment or a barrier cream. There's so many good barrier device creams or hydrogels out there. One of my favorites is Levison, not to plug Levison, but if you've used the Levison hydrogel, it actually really helps to suppress some of the response without the, the risk of, of turning things upside down. And there's similar hydrogels out there, but it, it's something that also helps the itch and the, um, the issues with the inflammation. Promoxine, you know, used to come as Pramisone. I think it, it's still out there available. And if you even give them hemorrhoid cream that has Promoxine in it, it really helps to be an anesthetic without r- producing some of the risk from that. And then have them use spray sunscreen so they're not m- missing their sunscreen treatment. And I think that gives them a little bit less to actually physically apply but, I mean, the message is turn the radio up and down. Just don't turn it off. So here he is, you know, later. <coughs> Excuse me, I think this was a week later. So he did, he did great, right? But what happens next time? And what happens to the next guy? So, again, I think that, that, that counseling is really essential to, to make that work. So these are some of the ther- therapies that are coming. 
excuse me. And they, they're again, they're doing more to the process and looking at the big picture of sun damage as well as the chemotherapeutic benefits of treating the spots, not just treating what's in front of us. The KX2 ointment is very interesting because it reduces migration of atypical keratinocytes. The Vidac ointment is looking at hexokinase 2, which is a trigger point of turning normal keratinocytes into atypical ones. So it's very selective. And what's interesting about it is it's not very, it's not very vigorous in its local skin reactions because it's working at a step well before what 5-FU and some of the others do. So I think the, those couple of medicines, I think they may have some really good outcomes. The uh, SRT gel is interesting because it's, a, again, it's looking at botanicals as well as some of the, the impact of those antioxidants. And then Actacarol is actually a drug that's already available in Canada. And uh, since Seattle is already part of Canada, we should be able to get it here. But uh, I think you know, this is something we'll, we'll, see, uh, we'll see coming to us very soon. So a couple other things I like to do is I don't fill prescriptions on Fridays because pharmacies know that dermatology people don't work on Fridays. They love to substitute everything without, you know, like 4 o'clock on Friday afternoon so that we can't defend it. So I always have patients fill their prescriptions between Monday and Thursday so I can make sure that they get what they're getting. I don't have them, I have them start their treatment on a Sunday because by day four, that's Wednesday, and that way I can get to them that there's a re reaction pattern that I need to, to do something about. If you have them start in the middle of the week, day four all of a sudden is on the weekend, and that means that's when things are going to happen. They're going to call you. So have them start their treatment on a weekend because usually the first two days, nothing goes on. By the middle of the week, that's when they start to blow up, and that's when you're, you're going to get the calls. So, and again, just use everything except steroids to try to mitigate those responses. <clears throat> okay. So this afternoon, we're going to talk a little bit about photodynamic therapy. You'll hear a little bit more from, from us, from Dr. Brown, from Dr. Kirby, and everybody else. And, and the one thing I want you to remember about this slide is chemo prevention is treating through the disease. And there is nothing that's FDA approved for chemo prevention for actinic keratosis. But I think photodynamic therapy is probably as close to a good treatment option for the long run as we're going to get. So this was a study done at the University of Minnesota about many years ago. They treated these transplant patients who were high risk with photodynamic therapy every other month for two years. And at the end of the two years, they found a 90% reduction potential of squamous cell in that group versus the untreated group. And I think take the transplant group and translate that to your high-risk patient, your patient with CLL, your patient with diabetes, your patient with immunosuppression of any kind, or anyone who's just been in the sun for decades and has a high risk of AKs, and put them on that kind of recipe. And that way you, feel, you will feel better about treating them through, but also you'll feel better about reducing their risk of, of squamous over the long run. And a lot of that was discussed in this article as well as a couple others about you know, what should we be doing correctly in treating photodynamic and using photodynamic therapy. I think the, the key to the equation is not only finding the right patient, but making it part of a recipe, not just saying, oh, well, maybe we should think about this or we have this big light in the room, let's, let's give it a shot. You want to be able to make sure that you've integrated it into your mindset of where it fits before you, you actually discuss it with the patient. And I think picking the right people to do the job or, or take the treatment is essential. I mean, they need to know the treatment, what it does. You know, they need to be ready to sit on the light for 16 minutes, 40 seconds, or for 10 minutes, whichever light device you use. More importantly, you know, 
don't treat the patient who says, yeah, my flight's at 4.30, so can we do the treatment at 1? It's like, are you out of your mind? You know, oh, your son's wedding is tomorrow? Sure, let's blow you up today, right? That's a great idea. So again, going through the scheduling, going through the time frame, making sure that the patient's on board, the staff is on board, making sure they understand the, the severity of the treatment, this all comes in, into play. I think the other thing too is, you know, make, make enough room for whichever light you use, make enough, you know, space, physical space for exhaust, make sure that, you know, it doesn't feel claustrophobic. And no matter what you hear about daylight PDT, no matter what you hear about one hour, two hour, three hour, it takes two hours for the logarithmic conversion of Portoporfa 9 with application of ALA to get 100%. Two hours is the magic number. I, I still believe in two hours. I still tell patients, you're going to sit with me for two hours plus, and no matter what hurry the patient's in, no matter what you hear otherwise, it takes two hours to get 100% conversion in the skin. So that, I think, to me, is still the recipe for success. And if you're going to code for PDT, if you're going to do it right, then do it right. And don't send patients out in the sun, and don't, don't think that you're going to shortchange them by not incubating long enough. Other thing to remember is that all of the drugs that cause photosensitivity are outside of the spectrum of light of blue and red. And whether you're using a blue U or whether you're using roto, uh, the roto LED, all of those drugs are in the UV spectrum that cause photosensitizing. You don't have to stop their thiazides, their diuretics, all of the other things that go along. If you're worried about it, have them hold the dose for the day. But these are things that, that don't need to be necessarily a big concern for, for the PDT patients. This is a table that shows, you know, again, they used to do microdermabrasion and acetone scrubs and all of this. You can, you can use an alcohol wipe. You can just use a simple cleanser. It's fine. But make sure that the application of the photosensitizer is complete. You can put another one on and allow the time to sit. And then, of course, again, you know, watch them in the sun for the next day. You, you need to tell them be indoors for the next day or so, right? The only indication for, for blue light therapy was 14 hours incubation. So what is 14 hours? That means you treat the patients, you know, the day before. So what happens in the morning of treatment when they open the garage door? Boom, I mean, they get immediate sensitization, right? And those patients used to come in saying, my God, my face hurts, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, you just treated yourself, right? So I think, again, keeping them in the office, making sure they're protected, give them a good hat, give them something that's going to protect them. Dr. Andrea Willey, she's in Sacramento. She does an amazing uh, treatment protocol with, with you know, the spa experience of photodynamic therapy. She let me use some of these slides to, to look at her uh, gimmicks. But that mask is available on Amazon. She, she's kind of the pioneer of warming the skin rather than you know, cooling the skin because warming the skin, again, enhances the dynamics of portoporphyrin conversion. It also increases efficacy significantly. And this, this mask she uses, it's covered in paper, it's about 20, 30 bucks, and then she uses a space heater for the arms and the extremities. These, import, these little tools of incubation, while they're sitting there waiting for the, the light treatment, make significant differences in those patients' outcomes. And if you've ever used a zipper cooler or anything that cools the skin, you actually reduce the efficacy by a third versus heating the skin. So it's really essential to think about, you know, what is it that you're doing in between the time so that they can have an enhanced response. A lot of the discussion too, it comes from antihistamines, and I was always a believer that if you give the patients antihistamines a couple of days before, on the day of and the day after, you're reducing the impact of what mast cells 
are doing in the process because mast cell degranulation is, is the source of, of a lot of the skin reactions in PDT. And that's why patients get swollen, they get red, they get itchy because over the next 72 hours, all of that mast cell infiltration is, is, is creating that process. So if you give them antihistamine you know, on the day of and a couple of days after, you can at least mitigate some of that response so that it's not so vigorous. The other thing to do is, is, is the business end of PDT, which again, we'll talk about a little bit this afternoon. And Mark Hoffman, he was on the, uh, the RUC committee and a couple others, they helped to redefine not only the J codes for the two products, but also the CPT and the way that for, for all of us, how we do the job and turn the light is, is going to be essential. So for 20% ALA, there's a J code J7308. For the 10% ALA, it's J7345. And all this is in your handout, so you don't need to, to worry about writing these down. But in this schematic, it has to be someone with a medical degree of some kind, whether it be you know, PA, nurse practitioner, MD, DO, whatever, who has to be the one who turns on the light and be part of the process, right? So, <laughs> excuse me. so using those codes will help to define the severity of the process versus someone who just turns on the light and stands there. I think this is important for two things. It's not only important for the reimbursement. I think it's important for the talkesthesia of the first six minutes of the treatment, which is very significant for the patient. If, you, if you've ever done PDT or if you've seen a patient with blue light, the minute the light turns on, you're, you're going to get someone who screams bloody murder. After a minute, they're going to be yelling, mayday, mayday, get me out of here, right? But it's that first six minutes of talking them through that gets the treatment success also for that time and the next. So being in the room for that little bit of time really makes a difference when you talk them through the, through the treatment. The other thing to remember, too, is that when using this code, 96567, you're not going to get paid or the office will not get paid what they, what they used to when we use these new codes. So 96573 is a better code for treatment when someone of a healthcare nature is doing the treatment. And the other thing to do is using a correct, which used to be the model for using uh, red light way back in the day with MAL which obviously is not approved in the United States. But if you do those treatments and you do a little bit of curating, all of a sudden now you've created a different paradigm in the treatment arm. So these are all things to, to think about. And again, it makes, a, it makes a bit of difference in the payments. And if you think about that over time, look at the difference between what they get reimbursed you know, for 96574 versus three. You know, I mean, these are things that make a, make a big difference in, in the, in the long-term treatment management in the process of the office. So I referred back to temperature, and I think it's important, again, to remember, over time and over gradients of temperature, and you see the, the, uh, the spectrum there, the more you warm the skin, the better conversion of protoporphin 9, the better activity against, uh, with the development of reactive oxygen species in the skin. That's what you really want. And I think it's important to, to recognize you know, how you can warm the skin without it being you know, an injury to the patient, but also what it can do to the long run of treating through the disease state. So again, you know, these, these methods, space heater, warming mask, all these other things to warm the skin, it really will make a significant difference in the treatment outcomes. And again, just remember your light source, whether you use blue, red, or the, or the sun, just remember the spectrum of what, what patients are in when you use those lights and how long you're going to be under them. This was an interesting study, again, just talking about the time frame. And again, looking at one hour, two hours, and three hours of where the patients are going to get their best outcome. And, you know, again, this was using 20% ALA. The, the point of the exercise was 
the one-hour incubation compared to the two-hour incubation, the three-hour incubation, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's comparable. But you have to at least treat the entire area. You don't just treat spots when you're using Levulab or, or if you're using um, Amelus. So I think the point of the exercise is treating through the disease and not just treating the spots or what's there. If you've heard of the, the sunscreen, I, I mentioned a couple of sunscreens yesterday. The one sunscreen that I think is most important in treatment of, of uh, as a photoprotection model contains photolysis. And photolysis are enzymes that mammals and, and uh, humans don't have. And they're repair mechanisms that undo the thymidine dimers and undo a lot of the consequence of, of photo damage. Basically, this is, enzyme is, is why frogs and plants don't photoage, right? And people don't have this enzyme in their, in their DNA. So what this exogenous method of applying photolysis does is it undoes the thymidine dimers, slows down the, the atypical keratinocyte proliferation. And it's not immediate. It's not even something that you can even say, well, yeah, in a month you'll be better. This is part of something that's a long term. And now that it's available in sunscreens, it's actually showing you know, significant reduction in the amount of P53 expression, Chi-67, all the markers of atypical epidermal proliferation, all of the things that potentially lead to more carcinogenesis. So I think these are, this is something that you really want to think about. And this was a study done in Spain where they actually looked at patients who did PDT. Half the group was treated with the sunscreens with photolysis. The others were treated with just sunscreens. And the photolysis treated group didn't need a second photodynamic therapy treatment because they, they kept their AKs away versus the other group. And I think that's really something to, to keep in mind for the long run. It, I was discussing this you know, yesterday with patients about, or with, with some of you outside. They said, well, when do I use which sunscreen? I said, I would use this sunscreen every day, and I would use you know, the Antelios or the Neutrogena line or the Solbar line in between your day because that way you're not burning through the photolysis you know, sunscreen for, for where you, know, you would just want to apply for another quick burst. So that would be my, be my recipe of how to do it correctly. But I think the, the point of the exercise is, again, if you incorporate this in a routine, you're thinking about the long term and, and keeping things away rather than just treating. So I mentioned about some of the global indices and about some of the cosmetic part of it, the, the equation. I think these are all things to, to keep in mind. Any of you who, do, who have done microneedling or are familiar with microneedling, there's a lot of good data on incorporating microneedling, whether you use the spot treatment or the roller. This is actually a study. Let me go. Let's go back to this. Okay. Sorry about that. Let's go back this way. This was a study done in Florida about uh, just treating you know, a couple patients with microneedles and showing, again, a good reduction change in comparison. So let's go back to the photolyzed concept for a second, where, again, you know, the, the thymidine dimers that are developing, as you see there, they are broken down by what photolyzes you know, recognize and they bind. And then you see the repair that's been done. So that's how photolysis worked. So over time, that DNA helix is not going to unravel, which means the typical keratinocytes are not going to continue to form. Therefore, you, you have a slowdown of the process that makes the AKs in the first place. So I showed this one already. Sorry, I forgot to clean that up. Um, all of you are familiar with heliocare with polyponium leukotomas. It's, it's an, an antioxidant complex that works really well for the way that the skin interacts with UV, UV light. And it's not meant to be a photoprotection, I'm sorry, a chemoprevention model. And we may hear about that later on because it's, there's some mice model uh, experiments that show chemoprevention strategy. What I tell patients is if you're going to go outside at 10 a.m., 
Take this at 9.30. This will protect you for two hours. Repeat it again at two hours. It will reduce your risk of getting sunburned. And over the long run, it will reduce your risk of skin cancer. This is the mantra that I give to patients. But I think at the same time, we're learning more about if you take it at higher doses, what it can actually do to diseases of you know, pigmentation and, and inflammation that, that we didn't have options for. And this article back in, uh, in 2017 was really, uh, really effective in, in providing some of that dosing strategy. So I would, I would definitely use that as a reference for, for where the, uh, the idea can come from. I think the method of, that they were coming to was that lighter skin type patients actually can benefit with photoprotection from an extra dose more than darker skin types in terms of photoprotection. But I think in terms of vitiligo and melasma, we, we may see a different dosing strategy that comes from that. So the good news about chemo prevention is, again, three hours north of here, you can go to Canada and get acetretin really cheap. The bad news is if you do that, you're, you're committing a federal crime, so I probably wouldn't endorse that. Um, the good news about retinoids is that they stabilize the epidermis. They create a reduction in the atypical turnover. The bad news is it's really hard to get acetretin nowadays. So if you can get somebody on 10 milligrams a day, it would be a good thing for them. I have a bunch of patients who are on 10 milligrams every other day but with a, with a couple of topical retinoids, and they do really well. The AK counts have reduced over the years, but more importantly, they, they understand the severity of their disease when they're on that. And I think, you know, again, when we think about a chemo prevention strategy, there really aren't too many tools that we have left. So I would, I would use all those that you have um, available to you. And again, like I mentioned about polypolymer leukotomas in mice. There, ha- there is data that shows, you know, the increase in p53 expression in in, uh, in the use of antioxidants. You know, the the improvement of apoptosis. And if there's going to be a study in chemo prevention in humans, it would actually really change the game for what's just an over-the-counter supplement for right now. And of course, you know, we're in we're in uh, Granola Town, so everyone wants something natural. Everybody here drinks, you know, gallons of coffee apparently. So. Drink as much caffeine as you want. Apparently, that's going to be really helpful for photo damage. I think, I think the, the point of the exercise is what caffeine does topically has actually been shown to, again, enhance apoptosis, enhance the way that the skin responds. And even green tea extract, if you remember Verigen, there were a couple other polyphenols. These drugs actually really show some good activity in, in a potential chemo prevention model. It's just, again, who's going to purify them and where are they going to go, you know, as far as a topical or an oral, oral uh, delivery system. And then the nicotinamide study, I, a lot of people, you know, are skeptical about it. I think for ten for ten dollars a month to have patients do something, I don't think it's a bad idea, right? And I think there's there, the data was actually okay. It wasn't striking, but again, it's an over-the-counter vitamin supplement. It's not it's not therapeutic, right? So to take this every day and and reduce your potential for skin cancer, I think it's not a bad thing to do. Okay, so with that, I'm going to give you guys some questions, and we'll do a little bit of. Uh, a little bit of homework. So, first question is, nearly blank percentage of AKs will develop into a squamous cell. Wow. Back in black, we'll play it again. That's pretty good. Well done, 16%. That was the magic number, right? And again, the flip side is, how many squames had an AK associated with them was close to 80%. But nearly 16% of all the AKs you see have the potential to turn into squam. So it's important to keep that severity number in, in, in front of you. 
All right. So all the FDA-approved topical therapies for actinic keratosis include the following, except these. Very good. And that I really think it's a bummer because we did the trials for engine dysoxate. It was a really good drug, and I feel bad that's not coming to us right now. But hopefully, somebody will somebody will bring it back. Which of these has not been proven to be an effective chemo prevention strategy? Unwell, this is a good sign. Interesting. So green tea extracts is, is not it's not a proven chemo strategy, but it's part of the equation of the long run. And I think that's where, you know, I mentioned polypomium leucotomas, I mentioned diclofenac, I mentioned Verigen. Those drugs were tried in Australia for the long run, and they showed photoprotection strategies but I, I, what I don't want anyone to be confused about with polypodium leukotomus is that it is chemoprevention. It's photoprotection that is immediate. And right now we just don't have the data for the long run. But maybe, you know, a couple of years we'll be having a different discussion. So which of these interventions can enhance the efficacy of PDT? Very good. You guys are listening. That's good. And warming the skin again, it doesn't have to be uncomfortable. It can be something that I just don't, you know, I guess the best thing is just to not use the coolers. You can use a fan, you can use a mist, you can use something within the room. Just don't do something that directly cools the skin because that's what undoes the, 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 what you're trying to accomplish. All righty. Well, I'll, I think we got some minutes for some questions. So, uh, but thank you guys. This was a, uh, Honored to come see you. So there are a couple of questions that are coming up. What's your preferred regimen for 5-FU? I, I am a believer in once a day for a month. Uh, I think the new data for uh, the 4% 5-FU has is, is kind of changed the way I use it. And um, I don't use it for spots. I use it for treating the entire area, whether it be extremities, face. But every day for a month, walking them through, and like I said, I, I like the uh, Alevis and Hydrogel. I like some of the barrier creams like Hylotopic just as a restoration. Uh, Sarda lotion, you know, a couple other things that go with it. Are there any studies supporting pulse dosing of topicals? I heard a brilliant lecture from a Miami, Florida dermatologist who would use topicals every week or twice a week throughout the year for those with a horrible reaction. If that, if that dermatologist is Brian Berman, I'm, he's going to buy me a drink if I, if I quote him. Um, but I think Mark Brown is in the back. He's laughing too, so it's kind of funny. Um, I, I I don't disagree with any of that. I think once a week for maintenance is great. I, I'm a believer. Same thing with the Miquelmont. Same thing with you know potato gel. If you use something, you know again these are all off label, but we can talk off label, which is fine. The the idea is maintenance of the gains is the most important part of the treatment. So if you can do something once a week or have patients do it once a week for a year, you'll get outcomes that I think would be more favorable than just treating through in bursts. 
but it's getting patients to buy into that. It's also getting routine surveillance as part of the, of the equation. So I, I think there's a lot to that. The problem is there's not a lot of literature and nobody in pharma is going to support post-dosing. So it's just something to watch. Did you say we should not use a steroid when treating with 5-FU? I did, and I will say it again. Do not use a steroid ever. Do I have a topic option that we use for actinicolitis? So actinicolitis is tough, right? Because the mucosal membranes are, are risky. Things will blow up a little bit. Actually, I think photodynamic therapy for actinicolitis is probably one of the best treatments. Um, and it, it's treating very, it's, it's an aggressive treatment that works really well for the restoration of the lips and the mucosa. Um, I think you have to be a little bit careful which vehicle you apply to the lips, but also uh, the risk of herpes simplex you have to make sure that's taken out of the equation. I, I, don't, uh, I don't prefer one of the creams over the others or the gels. I just think, you know, um, I would incorporate PDT into the recipe. Um, keep going. What's your opinion on two weeks on, two weeks off for topicals? It's great. I do this all the time. Two weeks on, two weeks off is, was the old Cyclera Pulse. Uh, it's a great recipe for 5-FU. Um, obviously, you're not going to have that flexibility with, with Ingenol Mepitate, but it's, a, it's definitely a, a good way of rotating and keeping the symptom complex down. And again, the one thing I didn't mention is the way that your staff and you in the office describe the reactions. Never use the word allergies or side effects when you're talking about the way patients respond to treatments. You always use local skin reactions, anticipated skin responses, something that is a cheerleading way of discussing it. Because the minute that shows up negatively in your discussion point or in your chart, you're going to be screwed. So always do something positive. If the patient calls in and they say, well, my face is ripping apart, if the, if the MA or the receptionist takes a message that says they're having an allergic reaction, you have to document that. And, and it's not an allergic reaction. You, it, it goes back again to how often do you see the patient's back, but how are you discussing those management strategies with them? And I think that's really integral to the equation. Uh, what percent topical anesthetic do you use for the face and how frequently? You know, the, the, the problem now is, you know, with Promoxine, 1%, it's, it's mainly over the counter. But if you can find anything with Promoxine in it, that's, that's my favorite, uh, whether it's over the counter or the old Pramisone. Um, the hemorrhoid cream, I mean, sounds gross, but it's actually the best treatment for the management strategy. Uh, Sarna lotion is over the counter. Uh, ItchX is another cream. They're, I mean, they all work really well for reducing the, the pain and the itch that goes with the, with the treatment. What do you use for comfort and burning with, while using Indrometate? Same thing again. I mean, you know by day four to day eight to by day 15, Hylotopic Plus, you know, the hydrogels and the Levison gel, all of those things, they really work well to mitigate the response without undoing the gains of what you tried to accomplish. Can you talk about how subderm changes the response of Epidex while treating AKs? That's actually a very interesting concept because obviously seborrheic dermatitis is a Th1 inflammatory disease, low level of inflammation. It, it will change the way that you look at the grading. It will change the, you know, the amount of erythema. I think there's also something to be said for how much the patient experience is with that, but I, it doesn't change my... Uh, management strategy. Probably the one thing I might do is add a sulfacetamide cleanser or you know something to moisturize. I probably would, would rotate them off the steroids, maybe do that the two weeks off week if, if we're doing that, but I, I would definitely you know keep an eye out for how much subderm is involved. 
If erythema is key to effective topical fiber view or micromod, is it worthwhile to treat with slower protocols, like twice a week for months? Well, I, I, I would say that'd be a great idea. But what I probably would do is do that after the fact and not before. I would still be start strong and be aggressive early on and then taper down to a recipe of a couple times a week, every week, once a couple times a month. And, and you, again, like I, I mentioned about the radio, turn the radio down, just don't turn it off. I think that'd be the best strategy. Can you address the potential for bad scarring on the chest with the microbiome? That's a very interesting uh, discussion point. I mean, it's a little bit involved. I, I think there are a lot of patients who they had vigorous responses on the chest, which led to dyschromia, and um, there was a lot of, you know, even potential for hypertrophic scarring. Um, I don't know how much of that was a result of a mycomod versus the photodamage process, but again, these are things to, to definitely keep in mind. There's a lot of good literature about that also. How long do you wait for a patient to initiate 5 if you have to cry? A, a week. I just, I just tell everyone, wait a week. Would you mind providing PDF for your slides? Hell no. Who's asking for that? Break your hands. No, there's a, there's a handout. It's available. Just ask Rose. She'll send you the handout. Um, any compelling evidence regarding... Yes, yeah, about five of you in calcipatrine. So this is still anecdotal. There are a couple articles about five of you in calcipatrine, which is why I didn't discuss it. Um, it's because there's a lot, a lot of data. And the, the problem with the two is the irritation potential goes up by 40%. But the efficacy also goes up. And... There, there are a lot of us who have seen, you know, good, good results from it. The problem is, for one, getting the two drugs covered. For two, the irritation potential is, is pretty high. But there's a drug coming from Australia. Uh, I think Maine is making it, and in a couple of years, uh, we'll, we'll probably see a 5-FU calcipatrine uh, combo product because of that, that, that data. Is there better than using heliocare for AKs? I, I, again, go back to what heliocare is meant for as photoprotection. I, I wouldn't say it's a treatment for AKs, but I would say patients who have actinic keratosis, they should be using heliocare every day. I just, I just think that's basic common sense. Okay, and again, like, you know, they, like somebody asked, there, there's a handout for you guys um, that's circulating. If, if you don't get it, come find me. I'll email it to you and uh, have fun. I'll see you guys this afternoon. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.